I'm down here in Long Island with Zach. It's my first time visiting this part of the state. I think I've seen all of New York now. Long Island's beautiful. I love it. I'm really glad that Zach gave me the opportunity to come down here. We had a good night in Manhattan last night. That was a blast. We won't get into that. That's not what this show's about. It's a family podcast after all. So, um, But there's a really important question here, which is very philosophically inclining, and which is going to be the subject of today's episode. When I chose to come down here for these couple of days here and visit Zach in Long Island... Was it really a choice? Did my free will give me the ability to choose to come down here on Tuesday and Wednesday of this week and um, and pick that over other alternatives? Or was I fated, whether by God or some other determinist factor, to do it to the point where I did not have a choice? And this is a lot more consequential than you might think, which arrives us at the topic of today's episode, determinism versus free will. Welcome back once again, people. How are y'all doing? So this free will versus determinism debate that we're going to be discussing today has some very important impacts in fields such as ethics, for example. Because, you know, if, uh, if you just went up and shot someone and we actually lived in a deterministic universe, well, how could you take moral responsibility for that action? This problem is very challenging for ethicists everywhere and regular day-to-day people because not only in that certain situation which you just mentioned, Zach, would no one be able to take more responsibility for their actions, but the entire concept of moral responsibility as a whole would cease to exist. How can you, in a deterministic society, take responsibility for anything that you do, whether it be considered morally good or bad, if that is the only alternative, or the only option that you can do? It's the only thing you're capable of doing. You, in this situation, would not have any choices over your actions, and everything would already be fated to occur. Now let's talk about some history real quick. Give us some background context for this dilemma and where it emerged. The concept of free will and determinism has always kind of been an important area in the history of philosophy, but determinism itself was never really championed by a philosophical school as a main dogmatic doctrine until we reached the early Stoics of uh, Greece and Rome, talking particularly with reference to guys such as Chrysippus and Epictetus. And in their world, the Stoics never really universally agreed on a singular unitary god, considering the fact that most of them were, in fact, um, Greek pagans. And Greek pagan thought uh, and religion is tends to be a little bit more um, ambiguous in terms of the role that God plays over the universe and whether God uh, or the gods are personal or not involved. So when we get to Christianity a bit later, the whole concept of determinism and free will will take a life unto its own. But we need to know about the Stoics as they kind of provided some of the context for this debate in saying that everything is fated to occur. Um, and like I said, the way that gods or um, God himself played into that was always just a, um, they never really could agree on it. But that's the one thing that they could all find common ground on. A lot of this debate in free will versus determinism actually just goes back to the ancient period of philosophy. Uh, there was this guy named Alfred North Whitehead. Um, he was a teacher of Bertrand Russell, kind of two important figures in the history of modern philosophy. Uh, they together wrote this book called uh, Principia Mathematica, 
And it's one of the foundations of modern logicism in philosophy of mathematics. But that doesn't really matter. But what I wanted to bring up from Whitehead in particular is that he says that the European tradition of philosophy is actually just one giant footnote to Plato. Go figure, right? You know, these just these two guys way back in the day questioning the definitions of things. But, um... So Plato, in this whole free will versus determinism debate, um, this is actually in Book 4 of the Republic. Um, great, great story. If you guys ever uh, look into it, uh, 10 out of 10. You know, in my opinion at least, it's one of those books you got to read before you die. So Plato posits a soul, right? The rational spirit in the appetitive aspects, right? The rational supervenes on the spirited and the appetitive. So... Justice is listening to that reasoning part of the soul, right? That's the, that's what the wise person strives for, the inner justice, right? But what Plato says is when you let the appetitive and the spirited part of the soul take over your actions, uh, you lost your sort of quote-unquote free will. You're no longer allowing the rational to supervene on the irrational. Uh, then, you know, you get Aristotle coming along. And, you know, he, he gives a pretty decent answer, but not, maybe not the most uh, satisfying. But the idea with Aristotle is that he gives Plato a concern for cultivating virtues. You know, there's a greater theoretical attention to the role of choice in initiating the individual actions, which over time results in habits. You know, you, we are what we repeatedly do. You know, that's um, Aristotle's doctrine of the mean. You know, every virtue lies between two extremes, right? So maybe you're, uh, you're a pretty brave guy. That's a, that sounds like a virtue. So on, on one side, you'd get, like, cowardice. And the other extreme, you'd get brashness, you know, way too courageous when you shouldn't be. And both of those are bad. But in between, you know, in, in the mean, the doctrine of the mean, the middle part, you know, that's the bravery. That's where the virtue, the arete lies. Now, Zach, that's all well and good. I mean, I've read uh, both The Republic and The Ethics as well, too. Masterpieces of work by two of the most influential Greek philosophers of the history of the European tradition. But so far, with what you said about both Plato and Aristotle, I'm not exactly seeing how those tie into free will particularly. I mean, um, Plato's tripartite theory of soul and um, Aristotle's um, ethical theory of virtues and means, there are... They apply to individualist, personal choice, but this isn't really addressing universals, and that's why I failed to mention them at the, at the beginning of the podcast. I mean, yes, um, for instance, when Plato says you lose your own free will, when you choose to allow your repetitive or spirited soul overtake the um, rational capacity of the reasonable, reasonable part of the soul, in, in a way that's true. But to lose your own free will is a choice in that case. So... That's not really determinism at its core, because, yes, you are relinquishing your ability to make reasonable, rational choices, but you made the choice to do that, so it's kind of paradoxical. That's a very interesting point you bring up, Elliot, but keep in mind, there are actually a whole bunch of different types of determinism. There isn't just, um, you know, for example, theological determinism, that God fates you to do any particular set of actions throughout the course of your life, how you're going to die, blah, blah, blah. It's all determined by God. You know, we've probably all heard of that thought or maybe even generated it ourselves without reading. But um, this type of determinism, um, 
I'll draw a parallel here to a guy named John Hospers. He was the first libertarian presidential candidate in the United States. And he was also a philosopher. And one of his works was on free will versus determinism. And he erred on the side of determinism. But his sort of determinism was built in a Freudian framework of id ego superego. And he's saying that the subconscious we have is like a sort of black box that um, inhibits our free will. So I think that's sort of a developed part of, or developed sort of version of Plato's uh, free will versus determinism ideas. Um, but in terms of Aristotle, he believes that unlike these non-rational agents, we have the power to do, or literally not to do, and much of what we do is voluntary. Um, the origins of actions are in us, and we're aware of you know any particular circumstances of a given action. And moreover, um, you know, more mature humans, they'll make these choices, they'll heavily deliberate on them with, you know, all sorts of different means and resources, you know, no matter who really has influenced them or influenced them. Uh, the idea of originality is kind of dubious in my opinion, but that's for another time. But, you know, the idea is that they're drawing on rational principles of action and, you know, they consistently choose either well or poorly. And over time, it will mold their character and really let their true colors show. Now, that's a really interesting perspective, and I think there's definitely some legitimate truth value to that. But um, So I plan for the remainder of the episode, just in a couple of minutes here, to talk about um, theological determinism, which uh, Zach briefly mentioned. That's kind of like the core of um, modern determinism, which kind of started back in the early Christian period, but we'll get to that. Um, my point there is that in the absence of... Um, a god, so to speak, who has already faded and determined everything, which in and of itself is a very problematic approach. I'm by no means endorsing that. But in the absence of that perspective, I don't really see um, what you were just talking about, Zach, as determinism, because uh, in that case, you are not necessarily relinquishing your free will You're to um, have rational capacity and act in accordance with that capacity. You're just making the voluntary choice to act unreasonably, you know? Well, personally, I'd argue that, you know, despite that, we have the ability to fiercely deliberate on any set of actions. Um, you know, when Plato talks about the three parts of the soul, I don't think we, you know, we rationally choose which part of the soul we go with, right? We don't know if we'll go for the appetitive or we'll go for the rational side, right? It's just the sort of thing that takes over. You know, like, for example, the Stoics... They believe that we do not have control of any extern externalities. That's the word uh, Aurelius uses, at least. You know, things are out of our control. Things that we cannot directly control. So, like, I can control my arms, my legs. I could bang my head against the wall if I really wanted to. Probably not a great idea, but, you know, I could do it because I have control of myself. Um, you know, they champion self-mastery. But anyways, um, with Plato here, right... This, um, so, for example, like, say, like, some guy comes up to you on the street, he's, he's really, he's really pissed off, he, he punches you in the face, and now you're really pissed off, right? You're really pissed off. You know, your spirited part of your soul is really coming out. And Plato would say, right there, you do not have free will. Now, I assume you would go ahead and agree with the relatively uncontroversial statement that, for the most part, animals other than humans... Um, tend to act in accordance to instinct and don't really logically deliberate their actions. 
And if this theory that Plato and others surrounding him have posited is true, then there's really little that separates us from animals. Um, so w without our rational capacity to act uh, in accordance with reason all the time, then what separates us uh, as humans using our human characteristics to be um, morally, rationally better than, um, than other species of life that walk this earth? Now, the Stoics um, and Aurelius and um, some of the other Roman Stoics, particularly Seneca the Younger, recognized this problem, the problem of anger. And like you were talking about self-mastery, they recognized um, never letting yourself succumb to anger or any other negative emotions is critical towards working towards becoming the perfect sage. But um, I see kind of a, and that's um, for the most part, a lot of people criticize the Stoics because their expectations of you in terms of uh, moral virtue were unrealistic. Like obviously no one's gonna fail to get angry all the time. Sometimes, um, like sometimes people are gonna make you so angry that you have no choice but to let go and uh, lose control. I mean, we've all experienced it. It happens to everybody, um, even the best of us. But so, so controlling those emotions to the point where they don't dictate your actions is important. And uh, Seneca, one of the Roman Stoics, talked about that a lot. But I think the Stoics are kind of contradicting themselves here because uh, their main doctrine is that everything deterministically is fated to happen by um, some sort of divine providence. And if everything is pro uh, providentially uh, predetermined, then what, what um, sense does it make to try to gain control over yourself and improve and better yourself if whatever happens to you is already fated anyways. Are you really having, um, are, are you really improving yourself by um, studying Stoicism if, and um, making yourself act in accordance with uh, Stoic principles and trying to better yourself to work towards becoming a perfect sage if everything is already fated to happen? It seems like in a truly um, deterministic universe, there would be no point and doing anything really because you don't have the choices to even if it feels like you do you don't have the choices to actually do anything if it's already going to happen no matter what and there's nothing you can do to change it that is a, a very similar rationale that i have uh, as z does to not being fans of not having free will or erring on the side of determinism this is why i uh, actually took quite a bit of a liking to the existential philosophers and I think they lay out a very valuable way to go about our lives. You know, you directly, just straight out the bat, straight normative claims. You know, a lot of these continental philosophers don't care to make these big uh, analytic proofs and live up to the epistemic standards of the day, right? So you'll get guys like Sartre, right? He, he has a notion of radical freedom. And he also believes that human nature cannot exactly be defined. He, has a, he sums it up in a three-word catchphrase. Existence precedes essence. And the idea is that nothing prior to us will determine the way we are, right? And because of it, it leads us into, you know, these constant decisions we're making in our everyday lives. Decisions, 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 everything we do, right? You know, you can make a decision to get out of bed or stay in bed. You might make a decision to roll over or jump up and down on your bed. You know, realistically, we have this radical freedom according to Sartre, and this freedom to choose. You know, they, those seem like very uh, minor and inconsequential choices right there, right? But, you know, what, what if the stakes were a bit higher, right? What if you had to choose uh, which one of your kids lives? Now, that's a terrible situation where you put in. But, you know, you, you can see how this sort of anxiety, this Kierkegaardian anxiety, 
really swells. And as you make these subsequent decisions, it only gets worse, right? Um, Sarge just believes that's a part of the human experience. And, you know, this freedom to choose is where we derive this, this radical free will from. And I'm a really big fan of that perspective. And if you think about it, um, this perspective is relatively attractive to atheists, too, because you can understand why people who don't posit a god find... Um, like radical existentialism, whether it be modern or postmodern, like particularly um, attractive and compatible with their views, because most theologically inclined people, people that have a god in um, one way, shape, or form or another, they tend, for the most part, to err on the side of determinism, at least in a slight capacity. So, um, in in that case, being the fact that um, God has at least some control over what you do and what you choose to do. So, without that. For the most part, you do have this sort of radical freedom if, um, like Zach was saying, um, quoting Sartre, that existence precedes essence. If there really is no um, definitive way to sum up all of human nature, then for the most part, it's on you to figure out what your purpose is. And a lot of people might be scared of this, and this is why I think a lot of people are drawn to religion. Some people are intimidated by the fact that they don't have a predetermined purpose. But I consider that liberating rather than condemning. If you don't have a purpose or anything that you're destined or fated to do, then that is essentially among the highest types of freedom. You can't really get more free than that, and that's why it's called radical freedom over yourself. Friedrich Nietzsche has uh, actually one of my favorite existential quotes of all time. Uh, to live is to suffer. To survive is to find meaning in suffering. Right? So the idea here is that we are literally creating in a sense, our own values. And at the same time, we are endowing our value into things. And by doing this, it's going to make our human experience, or through a narrow, subjective lens, do you know, just that much more better. You know, it would kind of suck being a nihilist, because, you know, you're sort of making everything suck for yourself. You know, at least, you know, with the existentialists, you give things value, even if they're inherently meaningless. It's pretty nice, actually. But um, Friedrich Nietzsche also has this other thought. Um, it's, it's about what we'd call, uh, not we, uh, he'd call true world theories, right? Um, you know, Nietzsche has a, uh, has a special place in his heart for uh, Christianity. By a special place in his heart, I mean like a real like deep down uh, hatred for Christianity. But, you know, he's not just picking on Christianity alone here. You know, he's also picking on guys like Plato, you know, what's the common denominator here, right? The true world theories, right? What is this true world theory that I speak of? It's whenever a uh, philosophical position posits another world, like, you know, the Christians posit heaven, Plato posits this ideal world of forms. And what Nietzsche says is that, wait, hold on, hold on a minute. So you're telling us there's a whole other world out there. And that world out there is somehow more important than this world we live in. Huh. So everything we do on this earth, I guess, doesn't matter. Nietzsche would say, that is total BS. He, he, he hates it. You know, our very existence, our being on this earth, is, should be of the supreme interest. And of the most, you know, you should value, you should savor it. I mean, realistically, he wants you to create your own values. If you want to savor it or not, he doesn't really care. 
But um, he doesn't like these true world theories because everything we do right now, right here, right in front of our existence, faces, you know, um, tack on whatever other words you want, you know, it's the most important here and now. And Nietzsche's got a really good point here in pointing that out. Because if you think about it, look at what Plato was positing about the forms and what the Christians were positing about heaven, saying that since these external intangible worlds are so much better and of a higher order than the current reality, that, that uh, what we consider to be reality, this current existence in this world, what is actually tangible, they say it's not important because it's not good enough. And Plato even went so far as in the Republic to say that this world is just an imperfect image, a projection, so to speak, of the perfect realm of the forms. But that's kind of contradictory and paradoxical, too, because you're dismissing reality, the real reality, this one that we live in, by saying that it's not nearly as real as something which very well could not be real, the realm of the forms. There's no proof that it even exists. Um, same thing with heaven. Obviously, um, no matter what faith you believe in, that's why it's called faith. There's no proof that any of this exists. So how can you say that that reality is of a higher order and a higher importance than this one, when we don't even know if it exists and it, or, if, or if it's real at all. Now, uh, guys like Nietzsche and Sartre, they obviously are onto something here, but in my perspective, they've also created a big problem. So Nietzsche is famous for saying that you are responsible for creating your own values, and um, with Sartre saying that there is, really is no definitive human nature, um, as we've been discussing. This is kind of problematic, too, because... Um, obviously we all have social conventions, things that most people generally agree are uh, good or things to do that most people generally agree are bad, like murder and rape and uh, robbery and that kind of thing. But if there's, um, it, with um, radical freedom, you're kind of opening up the door for moral subjectivism. If there really is no way that we are all supposed to act, then w what's stopping me from like going out and shooting somebody, for instance, and defending myself by saying, well, since there's no uh, objective morality, then it's completely fine for me to do this because um, I, Nietzsche told me I could create my own freedom uh, and create my own values, and I decided that shooting people is a great value to have. If there's no objective type of morality to condemn that, then it seems like people are going to be able to do whatever they want with no consequences. Zach, what do we do about this? I totally agree that that could be a really slippery slope, you know? We don't want people just dropping like flies on the street, right? But, um, you know, in my interpretation of Nietzsche, at least, um, I don't think he'd endorse that sort of thing. But um, I think he's, a, I think his thought is a lot more against rebelling against society. So pretty soon here, I'm actually going to start a series on Thus Spake Zarathustra. And I'm going to go much more in depth with this. But um, the idea, um, you know, this is at the start of his book, right after the prologue, The Three Metamorphoses. Uh, I'm not going to go over it right now. On the second metamorphosis, um, from the lion to the child, right? So when you're the lion, you have to fight a legendary dragon called Thou Shalt. Literally a dragon called Thou Shalt, right? Sounds sane, right? And on every one of his scales, it says, Thou Shalt. And that's supposed to symbolize the sort of cultural norms and the table of values you were brought up with, right? And the idea is to say, no, no, I will not fuck off, dragon. This is what Nietzsche, this is what I think Nietzsche is trying to get across, right? To overthrow the traditional table of values, not just, you know, going around the street trying to murder each other. 
And this is where it's really important to make a distinction between different types of morality, because there are. There are um, things that pretty much across cultures and across individuals, aside from a few bad people here and there, things that everyone agrees is good and bad, like murder. Most people, unless you're a murderer, agree that it's bad. And even some murderers realize that their actions are bad. They just feel like they have no other choice but to do it. So, um, <clears throat> now the other type of morality is more subjective. It's not nearly as objective as those things that seem to be universally ingrained in most of us. I'm talking here of social conventions, and a lot of time that's cultural. Like, for instance, have you ever traveled to a different country and saw people doing something um, that over here would be completely weird, but to them it's normal? Um, like certain, whatever, certain types of foods you're not allowed to eat in some cultures, even though like it's food, it's not going to hurt anybody. There's nothing wrong with it. Or, um, like for instance, certain religions saying that you can only work on certain days, like Christianity and Judaism saying you, um, shouldn't work on either Saturday or Sunday, depending like, yes, they consider that to be a morality, but nobody's getting hurt here. Um, and that type of morality that doesn't involve harm, like doing drugs is another one. Um, like for people that think, um, Marijuana or whatever other type of um, relatively harmless drug should be illegal. Um, <clears throat> like, there's a lot of disputes about that, but at the end of the day, um, it's not um, like the consequences aren't nearly as high as like those high level maximum security crimes. And those social conventions, like you were talking about, Zach, with um, Nietzsche, that's exactly what he's trying to get us to rebel against. He's not necessarily going out uh, and telling you to commit a mass shooting because there's no objective order of morality. Like, I think Nietzsche, like you said, would definitely condemn that. But um, in terms of social and cultural conventions, like morality that's not nearly as highly consequential, that's what we're um, just putting under a critical lens here and evaluating, like, are these really necessary? And is it really, like, should we even consider it morality? Is it, or is it more just, um, like, traditions, really? It's interesting that you bring up this moral choice. Um, moral phenomena, just in general, very interesting, right? So, you know, there might be, uh, some competing explanations, right? Um, what explains, what explains this moral phenomena, right? What explains it, right? There, there, there could be many things. So, one example might be, it might just be a part of our psychological sets. It might be a part of, you know, our human sentimentalism the way we feel causally supervening and regulating the way we act and perceive moral phenomena. But that's only one explanation, right? You know, maybe there's, an, there's another explanation, right? This is called moral realism, right? That the best explanation for this moral phenomena, you know, these moral theories we come up with, being able to see with some, some foresight, you know, playing out some situations in our head with, um, you know, this theory just backing everything, making the uh, decisions here, whether some action's moral or not, whether it be utilitarianism, Kantianism, doesn't matter in this case. They're all, uh, they're all just taking a backseat here. But the idea here is that the explanation for this is that there is an actual thing called morality, like a literal thing that actually exists called morality. And that's what moral realism is. And just like Plato's forms in the Christian heaven, the thing about moral realism is that you can never prove that it exists. Like, is it a plausible explanation? Sure. But you're making a lot of assumptions and presuppositions to get there. So to a skeptic like myself, it's not the most convincing thing. But on the other hand, it's very difficult to reject moral realism in any sense without, in turn, 
opening up the door to moral subjectivism, which we had already just discussed why that's problematic, because people can just decide to do anything they want and call it moral, because they're deciding their own morals. So, that's an interesting question. Well, yeah, also, take note that um, arguments for moral realism were, uh, usually rest on an ID or an inference to the best explanation, right? Good old induction, right? Hello, David Hume, my old friends, ruining causation and induction. Oh, what a guy. You see, all inductive arguments, according to David Hume, rest on what's called a bridging principle. And, you know, typically it's the conformity of nature, right? This, this you know, this, this shouldn't sound very controversial to, to you guys. Uh, the past, the future will resemble the past, right? Just, you know, in the most general ways, the laws of nature, physics, it's not going to, like, it's probably not changing overnight. Right. You're not going to wake up next morning and, you know, you'll be, like, attached to your ceiling because gravity suddenly turned off. That'd suck. But, um, right, so, you know, any conclusion you might draw from this uh, conformity of nature principle is going to be presupposed by the conclusion. So then your argument becomes circular, and you bitch about it because... David Hume. <laughs> yeah, this is this is also an issue that's been plaguing uh, philosophy of religion, too. You know, us, the analytics, you know, don't exactly know if you can prove or disprove the existence of God with the problem of induction, right? So I, I really want to see more contemporary work on this personally, because I think it's a very important issue to tackle. Um, Hilary Kornblith actually wrote a book that gave uh, induction a naturalistic grounding. Uh, yeah, just you just look up Hillary Cornblith and you'll probably find the book. Um, it's not expensive at all. Uh, five bucks, I think. That's what I got it for like sometime like four or five months ago. But um, this is definitely an important issue in the history of philosophy. And if you don't really know about much about the problem of induction in Hume's fork, um, you should pick up uh, my professor's book. Um, right next to me, actually. Uh, Hume's Epistemology and Metaphysics, an introduction by George Dicker. Um, excellent work. Um, but if, if you don't really know much about it, please do look into this if it's the only thing you do. Definitely, and um, we'll probably have an entire episode, or perhaps even series of episodes, um, regarding induction and um, some of the more modern Enlight uh, Enlightenment-era philosophers. Um, I know that's Zach's area of expertise, so we're going to get into that eventually. Unfortunately, uh, well, not unfortunately, because it still ended up being a great conversation, but we did end up digressing a little bit from our original topic, which was uh, determinism and free will, but we're not done yet. I intend to do another series uh, of episodes regarding this topic, particularly because we failed to touch on, in my opinion, what's most important about the whole free will versus determinist debate, which is the theological aspect of it, with specific regards to the Christians. Now, there's a lot of problems with Christian determinism. And in this episode, we just couldn't begin to describe it. So we're going to do an episode about that next time. So I'm looking forward to doing that. It's great to be back. And um, when we do publish that episode, I hope you are determined to freely will to listen to this episode. So I'll see you guys. It's been real. Um, thanks for listening.